When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I changed my mind about the whole publishing thing. So that kind of worked out on its own in that it showed me the actual path that I want to take. Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first bark to day of publication. I am your host, Sarah Nicholas. I hope you're enjoying the podcast and the stories authors are sharing with you. If you are, please consider leaving a review on your podcast app or sharing the episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show with a couple bucks a month, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. Today, you are going to hear from editor and fantasy author Rebecca Enzor. Rebecca Enzor is an analytical chemist in Vancouver, Washington, where she lives with her husband, two dogs, two cats, and sometimes chickens. Her articles on writing science and science fiction can be found in Writer's Digest, Putting the Science in Fiction. Obsessed with everything ocean, she studied fisheries biology in college and electrocuted herself collecting fish in a river, which inspired several key scenes in her debut novel, Speak the Ocean, out now with Roots Publishing. For more about Rebecca's work, please visit the links in the show notes. So welcome, Rebecca, to the podcast. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I'm so glad that you agreed to join because you have an interesting um, kind of path that you went on. And so we're going to talk about that today. Can you take me back to the beginning? When did you first start getting interested in writing? And how long did it take before you really started getting serious about pursuing publication? So I first got interested in writing in 2002. I was living a very long way away from my boyfriend, who is now my husband. And I was kind of bored in the evenings. And I just started writing this story that I had in my head. Um, I didn't expect it to go anywhere. And now, however many years later, almost 20 years later, I'm still working on that one story. I have written like nine others. Um, of that. So it's not like just the one story the whole time. Um, but it took about 10 years after that before I really started to, to look into publishing anything, not necessarily just that, but just anything that I had written. So it took a, a while because I'm a scientist. So writing is not exactly my forte, or at least it wasn't back then. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me about the moment when you realized that you wanted to be a published author? I don't remember that moment specifically, but I do remember um, there was a moment when I promised the characters of that first book that I was writing that I'm still working on that I would try to make their book as good as possible. Like I would try to make their story as good as possible because that's the book of my heart and I love it and I can never give up on it. And I remember just thinking one day, like, I will make this as good as I possibly can. But I don't remember when I was like, I want to publish. (laughs) (laughs) You told me that you um, had to kind of learn everything from scratch because you your degrees in in science and as is mine. And I don't know if 
it was like it for you, but I, I had a AP credit for English and that was the only, I never had to take an English class because my degree is in mechanical engineering. So how did you kind of start learning about writing a novel, the craft of writing fiction? Well, I've always loved reading, obviously. And in my senior year of college, I needed an extra credit. So since I had already started this book a couple years before, The Book of My Heart, I was like, oh, well, I'll just take a creative writing course because it's literally one credit and I only need one credit and everything else is science. So let's do something different. So I took a creative writing course and I was really, really bad at it, (laughs) but I really loved it. So even though I was bad at it, I still wanted to keep trying. I I took volleyball, so I'm kind of wishing I had taken <laughs> creative writing. Well, volleyball's fun too. <laughs> yeah, I had, I had already played volleyball. It was definitely like a beginner 101 kind of class, so it was interesting. So how did you then learn more about the publishing industry, like how it works and how to go about it and how to query and all that kind of stuff? Mostly Twitter. Twitter was the best resource for that. I read a couple of Writer's Digest magazines and stuff, but... As soon as I found Twitter and started following agents and published authors, everyone just gives information away for free all the time. Mm-hmm. And it is amazing. So if you follow, you know, the right community hashtag or whatever, that wasn't around when I first started on Twitter because I'm old. But, but now I've seen a lot of people, you know, give away a lot of free information on there. Editors will give away information. Like Twitter is this vast resource of amazing information on how to write a book, how to get published, how to, you know, find the right editors and and agents and everything. So 100%, I love Twitter. (laughs) Yeah, I remember in 2008, it was when I first started getting interested in the publishing industry. And I don't know if Colleen Lindsay invented hashtag ask agent, but she was definitely the one who popularized it. Yeah. And she would do these, um, she would be like, oh, I'm here for the next hour. Ask me whatever questions. Oh, yeah. And I definitely learned a lot from those sessions. Those are super helpful. So, and then what happened? Uh, Can you break down for us kind of your journey from then to signing your first book contract? Well, I wrote several books because, again, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, So Speak the Ocean was the ninth book that I wrote. So it took me nine books to figure out what exactly I was doing. I did try to query the book of my heart the year before I wrote Speak the Ocean, and that did not go well. It didn't go horribly, but it didn't go as well as I had hoped, and I was really bummed. And then I got the idea for Speak the Ocean, and it just kind of hit me, and it felt like somebody else was writing the book when I first started writing it. And then I found amazing critique partners, like super lucky in the critique partner category there. And yeah, and once... Once all of that sort of fell into place after nine books of hard work, once I started querying with Speak the Ocean, it took only about four months to find my agent. Hmm. And then we did a round of edits and then I was on submission for a year and a day. Oh, wow. Before I heard, you know, the yes, the magic yes. It was a, it was an interesting ride, I, I'd say. <laughs> So you had queried one book before Speak the Ocean, is that right? Yes. So when you say it didn't go well, do you want to give us a little more detail? (laughs) Well, I did get a couple of full requests, so I thought that was great. (laughs) But one time I did see one of those agents talking 
on Twitter about how they actually saw a book that started, I don't remember if it was most people start too soon or most people start too late. And mine was the total opposite of that. And she was talking about it on Twitter and I recognized my book. And I was oh like, no. Oh. <laughs> so I fixed that. <laughs> but um, yeah, and I tried to get into pitch wars with it and I just kept hearing no and no and no. And I was feeling pretty bummed about it. Mm-hmm. And that was when I was watching, I was watching Blackfish because when you're feeling bummed, you might as well watch the saddest documentary known to man. And, and that was when the idea for Speak the Ocean hit me. So it kind of worked out that I was feeling bummed because mm-hmm. then I got to torture mermaids for like 300 pages. And I don't think that's uncommon. I think a lot of people don't get an agent or a book deal in the first book they query. Oh yeah, definitely. But I'd say that's probably pretty rare because you don't know what you're doing the first time. Yeah. So, But you kept writing and you were writing while you're submitting. And so that's like, that's the thing to do. You know, that's what you got to do. Oh, yeah. Can you actually read your successful query letter for us? I can. Speak the Ocean is an adult paranormal fantasy at 96,000 words, best likened to Blackfish meets The Little Mermaid. When the feral mermaid performers at Oceanica Marine Park turn violent and attack their handlers, it's Finn Jarvis's job to euthanize them. The work is dangerous, and he botches his latest assignment, causing the death of two expensive mer. His dreams of becoming a superstar trainer seem lost until a newly caught mermaid offers him the opportunity to prove himself. That mermaid is eerie, an ocean princess ripped from her home when she pushes another mer out of the way of a net. She doesn't know what the evil land folk want from her but she's determined to learn air words and find out. Alone and voiceless, she watches the other merfolk broken into submission, but Eerie refuses to be subjugated. To avoid the fate of Oceanica's other mer and eventually make it home, she needs to make the crowd's lover as something more than entertainment. While Finn trains Eerie in her routine, she secretly teaches herself English. Finn has always seen the mer as ruthless aquatic predators, but Eerie seems more human than fish. Soon, he finds himself breaking the number one rule at Oceanica, never humanize the myrrh. After a fight with corporate over their mistreatment, Finn is fired and a new trainer takes over Eerie's show, a trainer who will do whatever it takes to break her. Finn needs to free Eerie before she snaps and kills her new trainer. To do that, he'll have to face down one of the most popular attractions in the world and protect Eerie from being captured again. And then, of course, the bit about me, who was a nuclear chemist in Charleston, South Carolina at the time, where I live with my husband, two dogs, three cats, and two chickens. I studied fisheries biology in college and electrocuted myself collecting fish in a river, which inspired several key scenes in the novel. The completed manuscript is available on request. Thank you for your time, and I hope to hear from you soon. Awesome. Thank you. Yep. I love your comps there. The blackfish meets Little Mermaid. That's perfect. You can really see that in, in the in the query. And then the one rule that they don't break is um, never humanize the mer, right? That's what it says. Right. Didn't that end up on your cover? It did. Yes. (laughs) So the part about the mer ended up on the cover and actually like the, the, the title ended up on the cover, which was really weird. I wasn't sure that it would keep the title all the way through. But I, and I don't know how I came up with that title. It just came to me one day. So I figured it would be changed, but yeah, speak the ocean from the first day all the way to the last. Wow. Yeah. A lot of times titles do get changed, um, but that's cool that a line from your query letter 
you know, became the log line essentially for the book. Yeah. And what was kind of like the response to that query letter? I got a lot of good responses from it. And then eventually, like, people didn't know how to sell the book. Mm. Because it's a weird book. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's murderous mermaids at SeaWorld. So it's not a concept that people really think about a whole lot. And it is very much a trying to get people to stay away from SeaWorld and other places that, you know, have these marine mammal shows and force marine mammals to be entertainment for humans. And not everyone wants to read that in a book. You know, they don't want to feel bad for swimming with dolphins that one time in Cancun or whatever. So it was a difficult sell, even though a lot of people really liked the idea at first. And how has your experience been since uh, signing your contract? I decided that I don't like publishing. (laughs) (laughs) I, I really love writing and I didn't really like, I love editing. I love making the product, the product as good as I can make it. And I love meeting people, but I don't like marketing the book. And I don't like, I just didn't like the publishing process, but I did discover that I really like helping other people because once I was, you know, I had the, the agent and the book deal and everything. I, I became a Pitch Wars mentor and then I became an AMM mentor and I really, really love helping other people with all of this knowledge that I somehow gained, which still blows my mind. <laughs> and, and I like that a lot more than trying to get my own work published. So this is the only book that I think I'm ever going to get published. <laughs> I still am going to write. I'm going to put it out for free because I enjoy doing that. But I don't think that I'm going to ever try to submit my work to a publisher again and go that route. It's just not for me. So I I knew that was coming, but I didn't want to, you know, set it up. (laughs) But that is so interesting because usually when we talk to writers, after they get their first book published, their concern is like, well, what about the next book? You know, the next contract. And you were just kind of like, no, I don't want that anymore. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't for me. <laughs> I, I stressed about it for a little while. And then I just went, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like, I'm a scientist first. So I've got the full-time job as a scientist. And I enjoy writing. And I don't enjoy the publishing part. So I do what I don't enjoy. It stresses me out. When I could just write and give it to people for free. and have the enjoyment part. <laughs> so you're still going to keep writing and just kind of doing it for as a hobby for fun. Yes. That's fun. That's cool. And then I, I started a sort of side business as a freelance editor to help people with their queries and synopsis and Twitter pitches, stuff like that, because I'm good at those. And it doesn't, it's not me putting out my work and going through all the stress. So, <laughs> so I get to help them be less stressed when they put their work out, hopefully. When did you say you first started getting involved in the publishing industry? Oh, gosh, it's been like 10 years, probably. <laughs> it's been a long time. And you've spent 10 years kind of collecting this knowledge. And so you want to do something with it, right? And you want to help people. Yeah. So that's the best way for me to use all this knowledge that I gained so that it's not just worthless or, you know, just going towards one book. I'm never going to use it again. Now I can keep using it. <laughs> this is our quick round portion. So it's called 
author DNA and it's just um, quick answers. It's kind of the the characteristics that we talk about when we talk about writers. Some of them are writing related. Some of them are silly. And so I'm just going to ask you some questions and you just answer real quick. Are you a pantser or plotter? Planter. <laughs> Somewhere in the middle then. Yeah. <laughs> Do you tend to overwrite or underwrite? Underwrite. Me too. It's all floating heads in dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> in a blank room. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Are you more of a morning writer or a night writer? Night. I'm a total night owl. Me too. (laughs) Whenever you come up with a story, you start writing a story, do you usually come up with character first, plot, or concept first? I'd say a mix of character and concept. Because plot, what is plot? Who cares about (laughs) it? Do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee. Team coffee for the win. Do you like to write in silence or do you like to write with sound? Music. Have to have music. music. Oh, definitely. Yes. (laughs) When it comes to a first draft, are you more get it down or get it right? Get it down. So like the NaNoWriMo style. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I did NaNo for years. I was at ML in Charleston for a long time. Oh, cool. Yeah. What tools or software do you use to write, to draft? I use a notebook and a pen for, for everything, for nine books and every page I've rewritten. Anytime I sit down to write, it has to be a notebook and a pen. Nice. I was hoping to get some of those answers when I came up with that question. (laughs) (laughs) Do you prefer drafting or revising more? Revising. I used to love drafting and now it's just a headache. (laughs) (laughs) And last uh, quick round question. Do you write in sequential order or do you hop around? Sequential order. Always. Always. I would get confused if I hopped around, but I know people do it. <laughs> I don't know how. Like copious notes, I guess, or Scrivener or something, but it doesn't work in a notebook. <laughs> yeah. The show's called Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. We talked about your query. And now we're going to talk about the second cue. So what were some of the worries that you had on your journey? And were they realized or did you overcome them? Or how did that shake out? Well, the biggest worry was probably that I wouldn't figure out how to write a book that could be published. And I figured that one out. So <laughs> it took a long time, but I did eventually figure it out. And then the second one, everyone always worries once you're published that no one's going to buy your book. Based on my statements, no one's buying my book. But <laughs> because, like I said, I, I changed my mind about the whole publishing thing. So that kind of worked out on its own in that it, it showed me the actual path that I want to take in the whole publishing sphere of things. Mm. So it all worked out in the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my um, my first book didn't sell very well. And my second book, I was really worried about the sales because it was more niche. It's, it's an LGBTYA romance. Mm-hmm. And it's outsold my first book like six times over. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, sometimes, you know, the things you worry about don't come to pass, which is great. (laughs) (laughs) And so now it's time for the third cue in the podcast title. Do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that is kind of interesting or unique or weird or? 
probably the notebook thing is the weirdest quirk that I have. Like, I literally can't sit and open up a word page and just write a scene. I did that for one scene in Speak the Ocean, and it was a very, very short scene. And I don't know how I did that, but everything else has been notebook and pen. And sometimes the only other way that I can get around it if I'm on the computer is I used to role play in forums. That's how I got into writing. I used to do little pony role play in forums. And so I go to one of those old forums that's totally dead now. And I open up one of those little windows and I can somehow, for some reason, write straight into one of those tiny little windows. <laughs> and not on like a giant, you know, word page on a big page. Yeah. So it's either notebook or tiny little My Little Pony forum window. What would happen if you like published it? Like you press enter, you press send. That's why I go to the ones that aren't used anymore. Oh. <laughs> like totally dead now, so it doesn't matter. You're going to like single-handedly revive one of them one day. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> I would be totally fine with that. Let's bring the My Little Pony role playing back. <laughs> I want to talk about your process a little bit because you write, you said you write by hand. Eventually it does have to get to the computer, right? So how does that process work? So usually I try to every day or every other day type it, like transfer it into the computer because I have learned that if I write an entire book by hand and then don't put it in daily or every other day, I will never get it into the computer. I have like three books that are all in notebooks, three full books that are in notebooks that are not anywhere on a computer. So if my house burns down, oh no, I lose a book. <laughs> I mean, it's probably fine. They, they're probably not good books, so it's okay. But <laughs> and then as I as I transcribe it into the computer, I do the first round of editing. So what ends up in the computer is a little bit less messy than a first draft, which then makes it easier to revise straight on to the computer which I have finally learned to do. I used to have to print out every page and hand do all of the editing. Oh, goodness. That was killing trees and it's taking forever. So I have finally learned to just do that in Word. If you don't do it, like consistently transcribe it, and you have pages and pages and pages of handwritten notes, it's never going to (laughs) happen. Or get carpal tunnel trying to do it all at once. Oh, yeah, for sure. Do you think that uh, transcribing it, you know, so often, does it help you kind of keep track of the story? Because I know sometimes when I'm writing and I haven't read, I haven't written for a while and I come back, it's like a little hard to get back into it. Yeah. Does that help you get back into the story? It definitely does. Because if you're transcribing the last scene, then you know exactly where to leap off from if you write sequentially. If you don't, I have no idea if it would help or not. But at least it gets me gets the story fresh in my mind so I know exactly where I'm coming from and then I can continue on with the handwriting. Yeah, I imagine it also probably helps you stay in voice as well (laughs) because you're kind of, you're typing out the voice and then so you can just dive right in. Yeah, definitely. When you were kind of in the lowest parts of your journey where you thought you wouldn't be able to write a publishable book, what kept you going and why did you stick with it? Um, Spite. (laughs) (laughs) it was quite this is a spite book yeah there there were people that were like it's never gonna happen you're a scientist you're not an author you didn't learn how to write and i I did it to spite them (laughs) 
and it worked. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I did it. I got published. So <laughs> it was a very good driving factor for me in, in that. And now I'm published and there's no more spite left. So <laughs> <laughs> can be a powerful motivator. So I, I went to school for engineering. I was an engineer for a while. And there's this kind of like common quote wisdom, right? The engineers can't write. Is it kind of the same thing in chemistry? Do people say that about chemists? I would say probably so. Because chemistry is a lot of math. Which is funny because I didn't like math before I became a chemist. But it turns out I'm okay at math. So I'm okay at chemistry too. Um, but yeah, the, when you're going to school for a science degree, and I went to school for biology and not chemistry. Mm. Um, when you're going to school for a, a science degree, they teach you to write in all passive voice. Like it's all just the worst passive voice. And it's as convoluted as you can possibly make it so that only the smartest people can possibly understand what you're talking about. And I had to take classes on, you know, reading all of these peer reviewed things and learn how to write like that and learn how to comprehend them. And then I took a hard right and started writing a fantasy novel. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was a little bit rough. So I think a lot of people didn't think that it would ever happen. And I, for a long time, didn't think that I would ever get out of that passive voice thing. And I still, oh, my first drafts are just passive voice all over the place. But I have learned at least to figure out where that is and change it. Does take a lot of work, but mm -hmm. I think you can still be an author no matter what your background is. You just have to put yeah. work in. So I agree. I mean, the reverse also happens to people say like writers can't do math, and I'm like, I'm really great at math, actually. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know plenty of writers that can do math. <laughs> On a general level, I guess it is maybe statistically accurate to say that most engineers aren't great writers, but there's still a lot of engineers who are really great writers. Yeah, I've met some scientists who are also authors. So mm -hmm. yeah, probably most of them aren't interested in it. But I need that nice balance of creativity and analytical brain to not, you know, completely lose my mind. <laughs> what were some of the biggest mistakes that you feel like you made along the way that if you could go back, you would do differently? Definitely the querying too soon, which I think is probably most people query too soon before they're ready because I've decided on this different path. It's not <laughs> as big a deal to me as it might be to most like, Oh my God, I did this and I'm never going to recover from it. And I'm like, yeah, I probably did that too, but I don't care anymore. <laughs> so, but yeah, it would have been nice if that first book, I think if that first book had been published, then I would probably just continue trying to publish things. Mm. especially since it's a long series. So I would have hoped to, you know, get the rest of the series published. So I'm not sure if, if that would have changed things if I hadn't queried too soon, if I had the book up to where it needed to be. But I had it where I, where I could take it. That was as far as I could go at that point. And then I wrote Speak the Ocean and I got my amazing critique partners and I learned so, so much about writing a book that it just that was what set me on the path of being published. Maybe if I had met the critique partners earlier, it would be a different story. I'm not sure. <laughs> I did meet, yeah, some amazing critique partners when I moved to Orlando that taught me a lot about writing for sure. 
flip that question a little bit. Did you make any mistakes that at the time you thought were big mistakes and then it turned out not to be as big of an issue as you thought it was? I don't know. Just I have no tact sometimes. So I just say <laughs> things. Like I just say things, blurt things out. <laughs> and then I'm like, why did I say that? And I always think it's going to be a bigger deal than it is. So probably something like that. But I can't think of like a specific example. I remember just the first time that I used the wrong name for an agent in a query letter in an email. <laughs> and it felt like I was going to have a heart attack. Like I was just so upset, you know? Mm-hmm. And then it didn't really matter. Like, I think I got a request on that one anyway. And the agent didn't say anything. Like, I'm sure they noticed, but it's also just like one of those things that they probably just roll their eyes at and move on, you know? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely remember feeling like everything was over because I had used the wrong name, which is such a silly thing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And like formatting issues when you send your query, it feels like the end of the world. And then it's like, I'm sure agents get so many queries that have weird formatting issues. Yeah. We're just like, yep, email does that sometimes. You know, in in pitch wars, sometimes we get people who email us because they're they're upset because the formatting doesn't look exactly right and they're like this this line is supposed to be on this line and they don't really believe us when we say don't worry about it it's not a big deal (laughs) that part doesn't matter it's but it's really not yeah Yeah. Uh, so can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons you learned on your journey into publication structure story structure 100 that changed everything. I read Story Engineering by Larry Brooks and just the one chapter on structure changed my writing forever, which is why I'm now a pantser instead of a true pantser. (laughs) So just knowing like those big beat moments and it also helps with writing the synopsis. Like once you know the structure and know those beats, you can write a synopsis, a one page synopsis for a thousand page book. It doesn't matter. Like it's super easy. So knowing the structure, and I learned the structure before I wrote Speak the Ocean. So I wrote, it was the only book that I wrote with like this structure in mind. And I had the beats plotted out, but I didn't know what happened in between them. So it was still an exciting trip to discover what happened, but I knew exactly where I was going. So I think that's why I was able to A, write it so quickly and B, write it so well the first time. So it wasn't such a disaster that I was like, I give up (laughs) when I tried to revise it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, structure, story engineering, Larry Brooks, 100% changed everything about my writing. That's awesome. Yeah. I had a similar experience with uh, Save the Cat. And especially when it comes to romance, like Save the Cat is just such perfect structure for romance. So this is not a business that most of us kind of succeed completely on our own. You've mentioned your critique partners. And so this is kind of like the acknowledgement section of the podcast. So (laughs) who are some of the people who helped you along the way? And I mean, people, organizations, whatever, whoever it may be. So the two biggest ones are Juliana Brandt, who's a middle grader. Yeah, Yeah, I love her. And uh, Michael Lamy, who is also a sci-fi fantasy author for adults. I've known Juliana for years. We met back in the blogging days, like oh, wow. almost pre-Twitter. So I've known her for a really, really long time. And then Mike, I met right when I was starting Speak the Ocean. And I actually gave him, we swapped pages of our first novels, of our fantasies. 
and they were both not great. And we decided together that they were not great. So <laughs> we swapped pages of our second ones. So mine was Speak the Ocean and his was Planet Side, which also his title the entire way through the publishing process. So that was kind of fun. Yeah, we met at just the right time for each other. And then we signed with our agents on the same week. And we signed our book contracts the same week. Oh, wow. It was kind of a weird, like, Mm -hmm. like it was just destined that we were going to be amazing critique partners (laughs) and like grow up in the, in the sci-fi fantasy author world together. So that was awesome. But yeah, definitely Juliana and Mike, they were like my two biggest critique partners and friends, like. And we all have birthdays at the same time. So oh, goodness. A weird thing. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're both great. And Mike is going to be on the podcast, depending on, I'm not sure on the release schedule yet. This His episode may have been released or it may be coming up. I'm not sure. That's <laughs> <Yay>, awesome. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we heard your query for Speak the Ocean. I usually ask you to tell me about your book, but um, we already heard quite a bit about your book. But is there anything you want to add um, for anyone who might be interested in checking it out? If you like sexy times, there's definitely sexy times in the book. And, uh, That's important. Yes. For some people, you know, they really want the sexy times. It's only between humans. There is no bestiality with fish. That's gross. It's a kind of a dark book, but it's also very hopeful. So even though it gets really, really dark, it's also a very hopeful book. So don't swim with dolphins. Don't go to SeaWorld. <laughs> Buy my book. <laughs> and if you need a synopsis edited, come to me. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Rebecca, for coming on today. Yes, thank you for having me. It's been fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of Rebecca's query in the show notes, along with links to find out more about her and her book. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on your podcast app, tell your friends, or share this episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show with a couple bucks a month, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. That is Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. If you're enjoying this show, please check out Pub Talk Live. Pub Talk Live is a publishing talk show broadcasting live to YouTube every second and fourth Saturday at 9 p.m. Eastern, but it is also syndicated as a podcast. Agent Chat Live is a spinoff of Pub Talk Live that features casual chats with literary agents with the intention of helping writers get to know the agents a little bit better. Check out both on YouTube or the podcast app of your preference.